You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. We're uh, calling this series Dear Church because that's exactly what the book of Revelation is. It is letters written to actual churches. Uh, The book was never meant to make us guess about the future or to freak us out. It was to encourage and lead actual churches in actual spaces, actual people to faithfulness for Christ. Uh, My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church, and it's good to gather this morning. Let's pray together, then we'll jump into the fourth letter in the book of Revelation to the church at Thyatira. Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given us. We ask to be good stewards of the scriptures. Uh, What an amazing gift it is that we have the words of our God. I ask that we'll take it seriously. Please conform our minds to what you have to say. It's so easy uh, for us to want the Bible to say certain things it doesn't or for the Bible to be silent on matters where it's clear. I ask you make all of our hearts desire what you have to say over what we think or what we feel to know that it's for your glory and for our good. Ask me all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this. May the word of God be proclaimed. We ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city, and that you find us faithful. We need you and depend on you. All in the name of Jesus. Amen. Greg Beal, who I think is uh, the best commentator on the book of Revelation, wrote this, that all of the letters deal with the theme of faithfulness to Christ in the midst of an often threatening pagan culture. That's the big idea, truly and the main theme of the book of Revelation. And this is particularly apparent in the church we're going to look at today, which is Thyatira. This is the kind of church that was prone to compromise in the society and city where they lived, uh, the kind of church prone to tolerate sin in its midst around it in a way that a church of Jesus Christ should never be willing to do. Now, the church had some great things about it. It truly was a loving church. They really wanted to love others and love their neighbor, uh, things we should all aspire to. Uh, But this, believe it or not, it's going to sound strange at first, but in trying to be a loving church, you can actually be threatened to compromise the good news and to compromise the scriptures. Let me say that again because it sounds strange. In being a loving church, even admirably positioned in the world, can present the threat of becoming like the world. That doesn't mean we love less. It means we make sure that our definition of love is from the Bible, the God who is love and who created love, not the world's definitions who doesn't know God, but still wants to tell us how it is we're supposed to think about love and show love to others. We're also going to see Jesus commend them uh, because local churches, not just individual Christians, grow and mature. Like your church should be more mature. Ours is now 15 years old and our church should be more mature now uh, than it was when we first started and he had a 26-year-old pastor. I mean, churches hopefully should mature as well as individual Christians. And the word tolerance is what we're going to talk about today. And tolerance is a huge buzzword in our culture, and it seems that many churches, just like Thyatira, uh, there's an emphasis on tolerance that actually becomes what Kevin DeYoung, one writer, calls over-tolerance. And an emphasis on being tolerant that these churches can easily become over-tolerant. See, tolerance can be good, and it can be a wonderful word, but this is not the good kind when it becomes over-tolerance. See, tolerance in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. Tolerance can be good in the right place and practiced biblically. 
And it can also be very bad and produce deadly compromise in the wrong place. And it's easy that in an attempt to focus on love or being loving, that you can begin to tolerate everything. Become worldly where sin becomes normal and living for Jesus becomes strange. See, if there's a mindset that love equals unconditional affirmation, that's where we find ourselves often getting in trouble. And that's the world's message today, is unless you fully support and endorse even loudly all of my decisions and my lifestyle, then you don't accept me as a person, and therefore you are intolerant and you are also unloving towards me. This is the world we find ourselves in, which also leads to things taking place across our culture, like a biological male swimmer winning the national championship in women's swimming. And if you say anything about it, you're viewed as being intolerant. I'm sitting here watching the news and watching this take place, and I'm looking around going, what happened to the feminists? Like, remember them? Like, like where are they here? And this is not, to, and again, the person, the male swimmer, is not the enemy. No one should personally attack that individual. But how do you even begin to make sense in this world when we're so morally chaotic that not only can a man claim to be a woman, but that actual women in their sports that are designed for women to use their gifts and talents and flourish can't even win the meet because the guy who came in 400th place in the men's or whatever it was now wins the national championship. How do you speak about that in this world where you're really not allowed to? It's really complicated. Doesn't you have to speak to everything, but that's the landscape we find ourselves in in a church that is in a church culture also that's either going to be silent or accommodating to these things taking place. It's also important to know that we do not expect people who aren't Christians to act like they are. I'm a Christian, and I still struggle acting like I am. And I have the Holy Spirit in me as a believer. I've been filled by the Holy Spirit. So we're not expecting people who aren't believers to act like they are. We do, however, want to make sure that we are clear on God's design for his glory and also for the flourishing of all people whether they realize it or not. So what's happened is that openness is being taught in this church of Thyatira, and their message was one of blind love and undiscerning openness. Let's jump into the text. Blind love and undiscerning openness. So we see this right to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. What a description of Jesus. I know your works. That might make you go, uh-oh. But he's actually about to encourage them. I know your works, your love. Like they are, they're trying to love. That they should be encouraged in that. They're trying to be a loving church. Your faithfulness, your servants, your endurance. All things Jesus is saying right on, go forward. And then he talks about how they've matured. It says, I know that your last works are greater than the first. Like you've grown as a church together in your love of Christ and devotion to him. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's not talking about random people who aren't Christians and trying to get them to act like they're Christians. He's talking about this message being brought into the church and now being taught and influencing the people of God. It says, I gave her time to repent. What a patient God we have. 
I gave her time. But she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. She's about herself. She believes there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. Or that her identity is anchored in other things rather than in the Lord. And he says, look, I will throw her into a sickbed, those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, unless they repent of her works. I'll strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. A stern, clear, patient warning from Jesus. Give them an opportunity by his grace. They don't deserve this because they've sinned against God. But our God, who's a holy God, is also a merciful and loving God and is patient with those who rebel against him. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, remember a church congregation, who do not hold this teaching, who have been like, that is not what the scriptures say. I don't know what you're doing up there teaching who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, and we're not 100% sure what he's talking about there, but uh, they're things that apparently this Jezebel figure was presenting. As they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Stay faithful. And here's a great word from Jesus. Only hold on to what you have. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to God's love. Hold on to your salvation until I come. I am going to return one day. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Now we said that in every passage he's been talking about in these churches, letters to the churches, the need for the church to conquer. And the conquering is not by military, it's not by violence, it's not by force, it's by overcoming. So for Ephesus, the first church in week one, they were going to conquer by not losing their first love, returning to their first love. Uh, the second church we talked about was going to conquer by remaining faithful in struggle and faithful in trials. This church here is going to conquer by not selling out, by not compromising in the name of love. He says, I'm going to give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I received this from my father, I'll also give him the morning star. And God wants us to hear his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans says. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So the seven cities in Revelation, Thyatira is probably the least well-known. It's the least impressive. It wouldn't be on your bucket list of cities you want to visit. And it's probably the least important in terms of its significance to the surrounding world. But the letter here is the longest of the seven, and there's a lot going on at this church. Some really good things, and some that Jesus says, I have this issue with you. See, the church at Thyatira was not without actual virtue. It was really a church that seemed to love each other, to be faithful in many areas. It seemed to be very service-oriented their community. But there was one big, massive problem, Jesus said, in Thyatira, and that was tolerance. And the folks at Thyatira, they tolerated false teaching and immoral behavior. Two things that God is fiercely intolerant of. False teaching and immoral behavior. God takes these things seriously. If he doesn't, and if he didn't, then our celebration and remembrance of Good Friday, we're going to do at Ruby Diamond, is actually pointless. How seriously does God take sin? It's not just we messed up or made a mistake. We've rebelled against the creator of the universe. So he takes it so seriously that the one who never sinned, Jesus, died because our merciful God punished him in our place. If God didn't take sin seriously, then Good Friday would have never even needed to have existed. We, with sin, must realize our sin, first and foremost, is before God. So there's a, a kind of 
idea again that tolerance is love, but what he's telling them is you've been very loving in many ways, but your tolerance as you see it is love, but it's how I see it, God is saying, is unfaithfulness. DeYoung writes this, there's a kind of tolerance in society, in the public square, and the civic arena that allows people with different religious beliefs to live together in peace and respect and to have that towards other humans. We want to champion that kind of tolerance. See, in society, we as Christians should advocate, advocate for religious tolerance, that the city or state or nation should not punish or discriminate against any groups for their religious beliefs. The only exception would be if it brings physical harm or abuse upon others. We call this religious liberty. Every Christian should care deeply about religious liberty for all people of all faiths, to be able to actually practice their religion without interference or punishment from the government. David Mathis, one writer, says the distinction between the church and the city or the world is critical to keep in mind. There's a clear distinction. The problem with some from the church in Thyatira is their tolerance is actually in the wrong place. They may, they may be admirably tolerant of different views in their city, but they're being of the world. They're cultural affirmers and participating. They're out there doing acts of love in Thyatira, but in their wide, indiscriminate love in the world, they become undiscerning in the church, which can actually happen in big-hearted churches that want to love their community. And he gets very specific with them. The specific sin in Thyatira was the tolerance of someone that Jesus called Jezebel. Let's just say you never want to be called Jezebel. Uh, that is not the most promising name to be called uh, based on biblical history. And that wasn't the woman's real name. This false prophetess was acting like a type of Jezebel, leading people into adultery, leading people into sexual immorality of all kinds, and leading people into idol worship. See, this woman in Thyatira was a spiritual danger, just like her Old Testament namesake. She was living up to the name that Jesus gave her as a type of nickname. She was the daughter of the king of the Sidians. She worshipped Baal and led her husband Ahab in the same to do that. So Jezebel is also the one who plotted to kill innocent Naboth for his vineyard, and she was called that cursed woman. As a punishment for her wickedness, she was eventually pushed out of a window, trampled by horses, and eaten up by dogs. Things did not fare very well for her. She was a bad person, kind of like my bracket. Things have not gone very well for that. That's all right. She, but you know what? Tom Brady's out of retirement, so life is good. Life is good. So she was a bad person. Wow, I felt a lot of love there for the great one. Thank you for that. So she, she, was, she was a bad person and led many Israelites down a very bad path. But here's the thing. We're not talking about someone who's not a Christian acting like they are. Now, do we think this Jezebel is probably actually a genuine believer? Probably not. But she seems to profess the Christian faith. And she's teaching in the church. And they're tolerating it. And that name is symbolic Jezebel. Again, in the days of Elijah, Ahab was Israel's most wicked king and did evil by taking Jezebel as his wife. It was a marriage of compromise. A king of Israel taking on Jezebel. She worshipped the false god Baal. And once Ahab married her, he soon started doing it as well, which normally happens. Jezebel used her power as queen to actually kill the true prophets of God. And now this modern example that Jesus is giving to the church of Thyatira is that she, this modern-day Jezebel is now teaching people to practice sexual immorality. 
and to eat food sacrificed to idols. In other words, Baal worship is being influenced again. It just looks different and is in a different context. In Pergamum last week, we saw food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality when Zach preached about the concern for that as well. So Jesus says to Thyatira, you're allowing a woman, this particular person, to have sway over your people. Man, woman, child, whoever it may be, you're allowing that rather than the scriptures to influence the church. He's saying, why do you tolerate her? Why are you affirming her? Don't just wait and see what happens. It's not going to resolve itself. We must get rid of her from the congregation. Not because we hate her. Not because God doesn't love her. But because of what she's bringing to the table is not a random sin. It's sin that leads to death. And here God is being a loving God and waving the warning flag and saying, I'm giving you a chance to get this right. The Lord had already warned her to repent, but she refused, we see in the text. But now Jesus promises to throw her onto a sickbed unless they repent. This is not a secondary issue. Jesus is not messing around. It's a serious sin worthy of death. And the scriptures say that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it also tells us the wages of sin is actually death. That is why Jesus didn't just come down and say, you're forgiven, go get him. He actually had to die. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Kevin DeYoung, he was helpful in preparing this from the background research. Writing on Thyatira gave this scenario. It's a little cheesy, but I think it's helpful. It was such an entrenched sin. There were a number of trade guilds in Thyatira. And he says this, suppose you belong to the local BAT, the Bricklayers Association of Thyatira. Told you it's a little cheesy. And one night, the guild got together for a feast. You'd be sitting around the table ready to partake in this great celebration with your friends and colleagues. And the host would say something like, we're glad you could make it. What a happy occasion for the BAT. We have quite a feast prepared for you. But before we partake, we want to recognize the great god Zeus, who watches over the bricklayers and has made this dinner possible. Zeus, his statue there in the corner. Zeus, we eat to you in your honor. For you, Zeus, we worship. Now everybody, let's dig in. DeYoung goes to ask the question based on the Bricklayers Association of Thyatira meeting. What would you do in that situation? Would you stay or would you go? Now, I do not believe this is a contradiction to the need for Christians to be in public places and to occupy secular spaces. I believe we absolutely must do that for the glory of God and for his mission. But would your participation in this particular instance, maybe others like it, signify before your fellow Christians, before the watching world, and before God that you are compromising and tolerating things that God clearly forbids. I think that can apply to what kind of wedding you're willing to attend and what that signifies. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the gender, I'm talking about the practice and if it's in God's eyes kosher or something as first century specific as Zeus. What are modern day Zeus's all around us now that we're compromised to participate in and not say a word rather than actually living distinct lives that point to a distinct God that don't make sense to the world and are even going to have you labeled as intolerant if you don't participate. See, Christians in the ancient world didn't have to go searching for idolatry. 
It was woven into every fabric of the culture. To not participate in these pagan rituals like a bricklayers association meeting in Thyatira that's going to be worshiping Zeus was going to stick out like a Yankees fan at Fenway Park where the Red Sox play. It was going to be a fish out of water. See, these feasts with their idolatry and all the sexual immorality that would come afterwards, the after parties, their version of one in the first century, were a normal part of Greco-Roman life. And to remove yourself from them can be socially and economically disastrous for you as an individual. Which is why false teachers like Jezebel and Thyatira or the Nicolaitans in Pergamum gained such a hearing. Why? And here it is. And this is the temptation. They made being a Christian a lot easier. They made being a Christian a lot easier where you have to stand for nothing, say nothing, and just go about your business in private. It was much less costly and as a result, much less countercultural. But it was a compromised Christianity, and who cares what I say? Jesus is saying that he could not tolerate it. He's going to make some kind of example of Thyatira to show all the churches that Jesus has eyes like fire, too pure to look on evil, and feet like burnished bronze, too, too holy to walk among wickedness. See, he wanted all the churches to know that he was the searcher of hearts and minds, and he would repay evil for unrepentant evil. God will not be mocked, he will not let sin go unpunished, and he doesn't want his church to tolerate sin, not because we're supposed to be perfect, but because of God's glory and love for our neighbor. We believe that human flourishing is best happening when people are doing things God's way and not their own. I mean, how many of us would claim to be Christians, but we've let the, 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 we could say, the applause of culture, or wanting to be viewed on the right side of this or the right side of that, let that allow us to operate as Christians rather than actually the word of God? People say that, I, I've heard some, someone, I forget who says, I want to give credit where credit is due, it's not original to me, but said, I often see people who will leave their church because of politics but I rarely see people who will leave their politics over their church. We're being so influenced by the world around us that even claims against false teaching and claims against immoral lifestyles that are being celebrated by churches is viewed by fellow Christians as out of step and unloving. Thankfully, Jesus is kind to us and has given us an opportunity to be different. What was happening in Thyatira? They were being more tolerant than Jesus, which is never a good idea. They're being more tolerant than Jesus, which is never a good idea. Here's the truth. Every generation of Christians faces the question of what to embrace in culture and what to reject. Because we are living as strangers and aliens, citizens not of this world, in a kingdom that is not of this world, but it belongs to Christ. So what will it be for us? Are we going to actually let our light shine and be different? And that's going to also depend on how we treat people. I don't want to be viewed as unloving. But you can go to bed at night knowing if the reason someone's mad at you because it's because of what you believe rather than how you treated someone, you've probably done the Lord's will that day. If someone's upset with you because of how you treated them, how you spoke to them, then maybe you were the kind of intolerant person that Jesus would be against. But if you call things kosher that God calls sin there's deeper problems here and he says this in verse 24 I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching the faithful 
who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. And this verse is so important. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Like, what a word for us today in this culture we live in. Hold on to the teachings of Christ. He's going to return, and he is worth it. The idols and the applause, they don't love you back. No one's immune from it. You can be a hero to somebody tomorrow and an enemy the next day simply because of what you believe. No one is immune from it. You know what else no one is immune from? The love of God and being kept in Christ for those who will trust in him and believe in him and actually really believe that Jesus is better. See, Jesus will give us himself. We're promised that we will be his and he will be ours and our final reward is to be with God forever. But what do we see with Jesus in this passage? Is there some strong words of judgment? Absolutely. But we see patience. He is not punishing them in the moment as their sins deserve. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. He hasn't rushed to judgment. His first instinct is patience and kindness. Like that's who he is. And Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Leon Morris writes, how amazing that Jesus still holds out the prospect of mercy. This is to be noted throughout the book of Revelation. It is full of severe judgments, but always there's a prospect of deliverance for those who repent. This is not to confuse patience with compromise, because the patience he gives us is not indefinite. Christ is patient, but not indefinitely. He will in time exact fitting justice as is deserved, which leads to his final message at Thyatira. He says, the one who conquers... And not conquers by military might. This is a theme throughout Revelation. But overcomes is conquering in this context. And what conquering for them looks like is to overcome the temptation to basically sell out and to give. To give in. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I'll give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has ears to hear, to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So that morning star, what does that mean? You might have maybe, maybe come across that in the Bible before, or maybe at some point if you're new to Bible reading or have never read the Bible before, maybe at some point you heard that phrase about morning star, maybe. I want to explain it to you. And the way we best can understand things in Scripture that sound confusing is to see what actually Scripture says about those things. So later in Revelation, Jesus tells us, what is this morning star he's talking about? He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, meaning I am the one that was promised to the Israelites, the people of God. All the Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment and understanding in me. And then he says this, the bright and morning star. So who is the bright and morning star? It's Jesus himself, which is the greatest possible thing he could promise his church. That he will give us himself. The greatest blessing God gives us is God. That Jesus really is the greatest treasure. That we're actually going to see him one day face to face. That he will be his and, we, and he will be ours. We will belong to him forever. And our final reward is to be with Jesus. Why would we compromise for temporary applause and temporary appeasement when we have this waiting for us? I was at a place in Dothan, Alabama once called KBC, a really good restaurant. You ever pass it through, I definitely stop there. It's actually, I think it's one of the better restaurants in the South, to be honest. Uh, and, and I'm an expert on those things. And 
uh, the act the owner won the show Top Chef a while back. I don't watch shows people cooking, but apparently that's a thing. I, I, I eat the cooking; it's more my speed. But I th- I walk in and there's this like tray on the counter, and uh, before I went to go sit down at my seat and order, the tray had brownies that were cut up. So I was like, awesome, free samples. So I grabbed a brownie, went and sat down, looking at the menu, doing all the things. All of a sudden I noticed that people are, the waitresses and the kitchen staff are kind of whispering and looking at me. And I'm like, I mean, I know I'm a pretty nice looking guy, but what's, what's going on here? And finally one of the waitresses came over and she looked nervous and she was like, sir, um, are you gonna pay for that brownie? And I went, what do you mean? And she's like, you have to pay for the brownie. And I was like, oh my word, I thought it was a free sample. So I jump up, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to think. And I, and I had just like preached three times that weekend in this little small town. And I'm like saying hey to people in the restaurant who recognize me from preaching and all this kind of stuff. And so I had to go up there and, and like swear on my life, like swear on Tom Brady's, you know, Super Bowl rings, that, that I did not know that they were anything but free. And they finally believed me, and they laughed it off, and I paid for the brownie. It wasn't really worth it either, by the way. It was okay. Rest of the food's great. How often do we think that there's no cost when the cost is actually really, really there and really great? You might think by affirming this or affirming that that there's no real cost to you. Because after all, you're being loving, you're being kind, you're being tolerant. And you think it's just kind of a free pass to be able to do that when actually the cost is pretty significant. Because the cost is the glory of God. The cost is not a love for neighbor because we're letting them think it's okay to celebrate what God does not. And also to lead them down a path that Jesus says leads to destruction. Y'all, I don't care if we're the last one standing. We're not going to compromise the word of God. We're not. There are things I wish, I'm just going to be really, really honest here. Are there things in my human flesh that I wish the Bible didn't say? Sometimes. Yeah. Okay, I'm not being fully truthful. A lot of times. But I want my heart to desire what God desires. That's, I want to delight myself in the Lord, Psalm 37, so that he gives me the desires of my heart. What does God want the desires of my heart to be? What he desires for me. And what does he desire for me? To live my life under his lordship under his authority, under his grace, under his love, and that can't be fully realized and and lived out if I'm living for Baal and the world and Jezebel rather than the one who gave his life for me. Don't buy the hype. The world does not know what's best for you. Social media is not the messenger. They are not the authority. God is clear in the scriptures that he has a plan for us. And the plan for us as believers is to walk in step with him and live our lives for his glory and his honor. So we're never going to pretend here that there's any other way to heaven outside of Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can forgive sin. We're never going to pretend here that God isn't clear when he says that sex is not for ready people or mature people or in love people, but it's for married people. And that he describes marriage clear as can be, as clear as God loves you in the Bible, is that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. And we will never compromise on that. Why? Because we love God and love people. That doesn't sound very loving. 
According to whom? According to whom? People who are being led astray by Jezebel. Let us be people who love God and love his word. We want to conform our lives to it rather than expect it to be conformed to us. And it's going to sting a little bit. It's going to cause some unpopularity. But you know what we'll do? We'll love anyways and be kind anyways. and include Because most of those conversations and most of that ministry is going to be done outside of these walls. It's not going to come from right here. It's going to be in relationships and conversations and patience and long suffering and long game of realizing that God has a design, God has a plan, and if he's not going to compromise it, we shouldn't either. Why? Because we have the message of life. Let's be unashamed of it together. Let's not be a Thyatira. We're in our good motives to want to be loving, which I really hope we want to be. Who wants to be unloving? That we don't compromise along the way. Because God would say that's not loving at all. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the morning star who is promised to us. So I ask we will do what Jesus says and hold on. That in this time of so much uncertainty and so much moral chaos and pluralism and claims of intolerance, Lord, let us hold on. I believe your word tells us the best way to hold on is to remember who you are over and over again. Remember what you've done over and over again. If you would tell the Hebrew people that you are God, you're the one who has led them out of Egypt. Lord, we believe those who know Jesus in this room that you are our God and you have led us out of the penalty of sin into your family as your adopted sons and daughters. So let us respond by loving you, the one who first loved us, and wanting the world to know who you are, what you say, what you've done, how you've designed things to be. And that we'll define love by the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let's be people who love our community enough to be kind and compassionate and walk with them. We're thankful that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And Jesus also told us the truth about who he was and what that meant for us. Let us respond in faithfulness. I pray for this church. I should give folks courage. Give them compassion. But we need your grace. We thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's remember together. Remember together. And have Lance, discipleship pastor, lead us now in the taking of the Lord's Supper. To send us off to the week, encouraged in Christ, mindful of the good news of the gospel, and serious about the things that God is serious about. Lance.